Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. I hope you had a very good, safe holiday weekend. Thank you for being with us as we kick off this week. And what we'll be talking about will be weather as we uh, take a look at planting conditions this week ahead with Bryce Anderson, DTN Meteorologist. We're also going to be taking a look at some more reaction to the CFAP program, the announcement by USDA on assistance uh, for agriculture. Some groups uh, happy but saying more will be needed. Other groups feel left out. We'll talk with the CEO of the National Potato Council about some of their concerns with how it is set up. And also today, Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity, will join us to take a look at some emerging consumer trends as we make our way through COVID-19. All that coming up on today's program. But we're happy to start things off with Sarah Wyant, editor and president of AgriPulse Communications. Sarah, hope you had a good weekend. I did, Mike. How about you? Very good. Hey, your state of Missouri getting a lot of uh, national attention for, especially in that Lake of the Ozarks region. Yes, it wasn't exactly the kind of attention that the state was desiring, um, but certainly there was a strong outpouring of people who wanted to be outside over the Memorial Day weekend. And some of the best of plans for social distancing didn't appear to be followed in some of the locations. But I can assure you that in many others, there was a a real effort, especially in restaurants. They removed half their tables, and they were doing things to make sure that people were following an orderly line in and out. And so there were a lot of people out, and some were a lot closer than they were. Uh, you know, following the guidelines was not something that was happening here at the lake in some locations, unfortunately. Well, I know a lot of people in Illinois that are going to Missouri just to be able to eat at a restaurant. Yes, that's one of the inconsistencies between states where people are looking about leaving cities to go to rural areas. And um, unfortunately, that makes it all that much more difficult to follow this, you know, track this the spread of the disease. So um, we're, we know that a lot of the folks that were frequenting the bars and the restaurants here were from Illinois, from Kansas City, uh, even just all the St. Louis folks that were coming out. So it's going to be interesting to see what our numbers look like in a few more days. Uh, right now, it's still pretty premature to tell if there was much impact. But I think, Sarah, a couple of things. I mean, there's obviously a, just a pent-up uh, demand here. People want to get out. That's one thing, especially as oh. the weather gets better. But the other thing is there is such a, I think, a growing lack of credibility with our so-called experts on this who seem to keep changing their story of what we should do and so many of their projections have been wrong i think there's a growing lack of credibility or belief in in what we're being told by some of these people well that's certainly the case and then you've got some of the decisions that are made that seem somewhat hypocritical in that uh you know, and we're finding out more. For example, we had everybody washing down their groceries when they brought them in from the store at first, and now the understanding is that the, the disease cannot live uh, on those uh, packaged products. And so there, there has been an evolution of what we've been uh, taught early on in this. Uh, but, you know, I think for the most part, people are trying to do the right thing. They just, as you said, they want to be back together with their families. They want to hug their grandkids. Uh, they want to see folks that they haven't been able to see other than on Zoom. So there is certainly a pent-up demand. 
All right, let's look at some of the uh, news uh, from late last week. USDA announcing it's making $1 billion, that's with a B, $1 billion in loan guarantees available to help rural businesses meet working capital needs. Now, who's going to get this money? So there are a lot of folks on Main Street that can get these loan guarantees. In fact, I'm going to be talking to the head of rural development at USDA, and we'll be featuring that on our website later on this week. But, um, you know, so many of the businesses that didn't qualify for PPP or were unable to get on the funds and can get these loan guarantees and keep them going uh, so much longer than they might otherwise through traditional financing or for the first types of financing. So anything from, you know, the mom-and-pop stores along Main Street or even some of our um, ag equipment companies and uh, those that are making products out in rural America can qualify for some of those loan guarantees. Meanwhile, what are you hearing on the the getting food out to people, the, the purchasing of commodities and getting them out to those in need? What are you hearing on how that's going? Well, in some areas, better than expected, I think, Mike. Um, and we see that Secretary Purdue is going to go to another event in Pennsylvania tomorrow to kind of highlight the distribution under this food box program. Uh, but in some areas, there's been a lot of concern, especially from the fruit and vegetable folks, that some of the folks that got the contracts weren't qualified under PACA. And so there's there's been a few missteps. But for the most part, I, I see that there's a big effort in Illinois as well. Um, you know, people are lined up for miles to get this food. And so it just goes to show how desperate so many people still are because either they haven't gotten their unemployment, they didn't get their $1,200 checks, and they haven't been able to work. And on CFAP, what do you, I mean, we hear from some groups thankful for what they're getting, but uh, saying more is needed, and others are saying, hey, we kind of got left out of this too. Yeah, I you know, there's the, the chicken folks, and then there's going to be requests from the catfish folks, and there's others that are still very interested in being eligible. But USDA officials say that, uh, you know, you can start enrolling today for that $16 billion in direct payments, and um, they're, they're promising to get that money out to farmers within a week, which seems ambitious, but hopefully those that have already pre-enrolled can get that. And then you're already hearing people from, like Senator Bozeman, that have told us on our open mic podcast that there's going to be more money coming. And there's going to have to be because even if all the dollars that we know of are distributed today, it seems unlikely that corn and soybean farmers, for example, will be able to survive into the next year as a result of all this downturn. So um, it's still very, very important for these folks to get government aid and, and to make sure that they can keep farming. And still a lot of focus on the meatpacking plants around the, the country and concerns there about keeping them open and the workers healthy. Yes, you probably saw, Mike, that there was a guidance uh, from the White House to encourage testing of all meatpacking employees. And that was from Deborah Burks, who many of you have seen and heard on different shows as the White House advisor for the Coronavirus Task Force. I mean, she's really stressing the importance of testing to make sure that they're catching everybody before they get into the plants and work side by side with others. So I think that that's just another elevation of the critical nature of our food supply and how important it is to our overall, not only food security, but national security. 
All right, Sarah, good stuff as always. Uh, We look forward to your reporting, you and your great staff at AgriPulse Communications. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you. You too, Mike. Sarah Wyatt, editor and president of AgriPulse Communications. All right, up next, DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson joins us. We take a look at the weather this week ahead. Um, Kind of a mixed bag over the holiday weekend. Uh, We'll get an update from Bryce and look ahead, not only as we finish out May, but our first look really closer look into the month of June. So stay with us. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, let's talk weather with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. Bryce, thanks for being with us. We had kind of a mixed bag of weather over the holiday weekend. It uh, certainly was, Mike, uh, because there was some heavy rain in uh, the Central Plains and in the Western Corn Belt. Uh, We're still getting some flash flooding in uh, this section of the country. And in parts of the Eastern Corn Belt, uh, there was also a Pretty heavy round of rainfall that angled to the southeast and uh, into the Carolinas. And uh, today we've got a combination of a cutoff low uh, in the southern plains, drawing in moisture to keep things kind of wet in that central corridor of the country. And uh, then there's a, a tropical, little tropical system that's dragging some rain into the southeast. But then uh, in the northern and kind of the central part of the Midwest, Uh, The uh, pattern was not quite as heavy on rainfall, and so it uh, offered maybe a little bit of a um, a little bit of a milder trend, and allowed for crops to get going and take advantage of soil moisture that they have uh, for the growing degree day totals, and uh, so we're left with uh, a little bit of variability, but still there's a, a lot better scenario than we had last year. Uh, this afternoon, uh, when we get those planning progress numbers, we're likely to see corn at around 90% and soybeans around 75%. And obviously, that's a lot better than it was a year ago. I think a year ago, there was what maybe uh, about 55% of the corn crop that was um, rated or, or reported as being uh, planted here by late May. And uh, so that's a much better total than uh, we had a year ago. Let's look at some of the areas that have been dry. Did they get uh, enough rain to help them over the weekend? There was a little bit of uh, rainfall in the southwestern plains, although it's um, it was really a stair-step thing. And, and the reason I say stair-step is because it, uh, the, the rainfall totals uh, from south-central Kansas uh, into southwestern Kansas declined as you make your way to a higher elevation uh, in the plains uh, altitude. It, it was pretty remarkable, and, and it's, a, it's kind of an ongoing feature. Medicine Lodge, Kansas, that is uh, straight south of Pratt and about, uh, uh, about an hour drive uh, west of Wichita, had over an inch of rain uh, this past weekend. Uh, about um, 100 miles west of Medicine Lodge, Dodge City, had around six-tenths of an inch, six to seven-tenths or so, and then west of Dodge City, uh, and yet a, uh, another 
elevation rise in the southwestern plains, Garden City had around a half an inch or so. And so that rainfall just decreased depending on the uh, progression to the west. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's a climate feature, a, a geography and climate feature that uh, comes into play so often. And then farther west in southeastern Colorado and into the northern Texas panhandle, uh, there was very little rainfall that developed, you know, less than a quarter of an inch overall. And so that uh, scenario continues on. And then farther to the west into the four corners, hardly anything happened and uh, developed. So uh, this, uh, this southwestern plains into the uh, southwestern United States drier trend, I think, is overall still quite solidly in place uh, going here into the end of the month. All right, let's look at this week ahead to wrap up May and into June. What do you see? Well, uh, over the next several days, it still is going to be pretty unsettled over the eastern plains and the Midwest. So we are going to get uh, continued rounds of rainfall. We're getting some more rain over over my head this morning in Omaha, and uh, that extends south all the way into the uh, Gulf Coast of Texas. Uh, but uh, that's going to keep on over the next uh couple, three days, then by Thursday, we should have a drier trend start to develop with uh, the, the prospect for a drier pattern definitely setting in during uh, next week as we end the month of May and get into June. In fact, next week, uh, most of the central U.S. has above normal temperatures and below normal precipitation in store. Uh, we're going to see that especially in terms of those milder temps or warmer temperatures from the Mississippi Valley north and west, and then uh, kind of a, a near-normal track over the Ohio Valley through the southeast. And uh, like I say, precipitation, northern plains, midwest, below normal next week. Uh, meanwhile, in parts of the southeast, they're going to get continued rainfall chances, uh, which they really need because it has been quite dry in some sections of the southeast here lately. So they're going to get the, more of the rainfall focus uh, during the next uh, week to 10 days. Okay, let's uh, take a look at South America. Bring us up to date there. Uh, there was some pretty favorable rainfall in South Central and Southern Brazil during the past uh, four to five days, especially in uh, Mato Grosso do Sul and Paraná. They had anywhere from two to four inches of rain. I think that that's a real benefit for their winter corn crop, uh, their safrina crop. And uh, farther to the north, Mato Grosso had some light rainfall, uh, maybe not a, um, exactly what uh, they'd like to uh, have for rainfall. Maybe they would like to have a little bit more. But Mato Grosso has had a uh, higher round of soil moisture to work with all, already. I think that that uh, Brazil corn crop uh, definitely had some benefit in aggregate you know, with that rainfall that they had. And uh, looking uh, much better, I think, for kind of stabilizing the uh, corn crop prospects. Russia and Europe? Black Sea uh, crop areas, Mike, had uh, pretty good rainfall, especially in South Russia. They had uh, three-quarters to two inches uh, during the past week. And uh, there has been a little bit of a decline in that total Russia and uh, Ukraine crop uh, size for their wheat uh, production this year, but it's not a, a real uh, drawdown in terms of total crop supplies. 
I think this rainfall was pretty beneficial. Now, Europe had a little bit more variability. Eastern Europe had some uh, pretty uh, decent rainfall. In the Czech Republic into uh, Romania with uh, anywhere from about uh, a half to one and a half inches of rain. Now, in France and Germany, they had some light showers, but I think that their uh, overall drier trend is still pretty well in place, and it still is kind of questionable as to how, how well they're going to do. Now, in the southern hemisphere, Australia has had a much better start to their wheat crop year, and uh, we see uh, rainfall both in eastern Australia and now moving into western Australia, uh, so their uh, soil moisture, uh, agricultural-wise, uh, for their uh, wheat crop is looking much better than this last year. So I think Australia is kind of making up some of the uh, deficit that we're seeing in some places in Western Europe, particularly. All right, Bryson, let's wrap it up with what's your long-range forecast for us? Have you looked uh, into this summer uh, very much of what we might be see shaping up? Yeah, summer is looking pretty favorable, actually, uh, especially with all of the soil moisture that we've got here over the central part of the country. Uh, temperatures are, are showing a near-to-above-normal tendency over most of the Midwest uh, to, the, to our west and to our southeast. Uh, out of the central part of the country, it is an above-normal track, no doubt about that. And then uh, precipitation uh, this summer is still looking... Uh, near to above normal, again, over most of the plains and the Midwest, except for that southwestern plains region. Uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, soil moisture and crop development feedback mechanism going on that uh, keeps uh, showers as a possibility on the longer range and a pretty uh, favorable summer for, uh, for uh, corn and soybean uh, development as uh, we look ahead to this year. Oh, so you're not seeing any big drop off or the like the spigot being shut off all of a sudden. That's not that's not how things are playing out. And and uh, for a longer range uh, driving feature, the Pacific Ocean uh, temperatures are pretty well locked in a neutral phase until maybe about the end of August when there might be some cooling toward uh, a La Nina pattern developing. But it does not appear that that's uh, going to be a fast uh, developing feature and uh, a neutral Pacific with uh, the way things are starting out right now uh, indicates a, a pretty um, a, a pretty nice summer actually when you think about crop conditions uh, looking ahead that sounds good all right Bryce thanks a lot have a good week we'll talk to you next week sounds good Mike thank you take care DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson coming up next we're going to talk with the CEO of the Center for Food Integrity Charlie Arnott will join us some of the research showing uh, what are some of the emerging consumer trends that will come out of COVID-19. We'll talk about that next here on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, as we all get used to the changes in our lives brought on by COVID-19, it'll be interesting to see which changes occur that will last after COVID-19. Let's talk about it with Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. Charlie, hope you're well. Thanks for joining us. 
Mike, always a pleasure. Good to be back with you on this Tuesday morning. I, I just think it'll be interesting to see what trends develop and stay with us after we get past this pandemic. Uh, you're starting to see some trends starting to develop among consumers already, aren't you? We are, and it's interesting, but the question that you asked and the way you phrased it, I think, is, is directly on point. Uh, each week, we are tracking and kind of following consumer trends as they continue to evolve. And the real question, I think, for those in food and agriculture will be, which of these are kind of knee-jerk reactions or fads, and which of these are trends that we're likely to see that will impact behavior, attitudes, and the way that consumers engage with agriculture in the long term? One of the interesting things that we're seeing is that people are really beginning to look more toward technology to overcome some of the challenges that we see across society. And some of that may be tied to uh, what people are looking for in terms of testing technology or medical breakthroughs or vaccines, but it also creates an opportunity for us to have a, a bit of a different conversation about the use of technology in agriculture and food production. The, the key to that, Mike, is going to be for us to have that conversation in the context of consumer interest, not in the context of agriculture interest. Now, the technology is values neutral, but how it's perceived is not. So, for example, in agriculture, we may talk about it in terms of increasing productivity or increasing efficiency, but there are also some substantial societal benefits. When we increase productivity and we increase efficiency, we also make systems more sustainable because we are producing more using fewer natural resources. We're reducing our impact on the environment. So it's a matter of, of making sure that we understand that conversation. You know, one of the emerging trends that we're seeing is an interest in, in shortening the supply chain and food miles, et cetera. So if, if that conversation around how do we talk about efficiency where it really introduces that concept in the, in the context of the consumer or social benefit, not just in the context of the benefit to agriculture. We're talking with Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. Charlie, you talk about um, consumers looking more to technology. I find it interesting because there was such a, in some circles, a backlash or fear of biotech, GMOs, uh, when it came to food production. Do you think that attitude will, will change because of this or not? I think there's an opportunity for it to change and to be reshaped, Mike. I think there's an opportunity for us to engage in this conversation in a brand new way. Uh, because we are see, seeing people turn to technology more today. Uh, as I mentioned before, some of it's in direct response to the human health threat uh, to the pandemic. But it's also in terms of how people are actually shopping and getting their food. Uh, whether it's ordering more online or kind of the click and pick where you go online, you select your groceries, and you go through the drive through to pick it up. Uh, seeing significant increases in people using technology to help them find new ways to adapt to the challenging situation we find ourselves having today. If we introduce technology, let's take gene editing as, as one example, as a way to address similar challenges, then perhaps there's an opportunity where we can say, look, breeding, breeding technology has been on a continuum since the first farmer saved seeds and, and planted his best seeds the next season to try to increase productivity. We've continued to improve breeding over the, the centuries, and today the latest iteration of that is gene editing. What gene editing allows us to do is to be more resilient in agriculture uh, during climate change, to be able to raise animals with less disease to be able to accomplish the things that society wants us to accomplish. So again, 
a lot of it goes back to positioning it, talking about it in terms of, of making sure people understand the consumer benefit, the social benefit, the broader environmental benefit of what we're doing in agriculture today. And that technology allows us to achieve those social outcomes, not just benefit farmers and not just benefit technology providers. It's kind of interesting. As much as most of us say and want things to get back to the way they were, we're also kind of saying we want some things to change for the better moving forward. So we want the way they were, but yet we want some changes too. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and most of what I'm hearing today from the consumer insights experts with whom we speak is there is no going back, right? There's going forward. We will create a, a new sense of, of what is normal, and that's a grossly overused term today, um, but there isn't any going back. There are some of these things that will change forever. Uh, if you think about back before 9-11, Mike, all of us took air travel and air transportation for granted. We just dropped out, dropped off at the airport walked up to the gate, got on our plane. That single day, that single incident, fundamentally changed the way that all of us travel. Uh, we don't think a second thought today about standing in line and having our bags go through a screener and taking off our shoes and going through a scanner uh, to get on a plane. So I think part of this is going to be what of, which, which of these changes are going to be with us going forward. Are we going to see masks in public places? Are we going to continue to see greater concern about uh, public health and food safety, et cetera. And we're beginning to see some people try and, and use the pandemic as a way to fan the flames of old concerns. Um, I don't think that's going to work. Uh, the one thing that I've been encouraged by is the phenomenal uh, outpouring of public support and empathy for the challenges facing farmers as a result of this. So I think there is an opportunity for us to really engage in this conversation in a very, very different way. But I think it's going to be really important for agriculture to understand that the language of how we engage and how we need to communicate has to be different. We have to continue to talk about this in terms of the benefits to consumers, the benefits to society, the benefits to animals, the benefits to the environment, if we want to be successful. Because people do want to continue to feel secure, but they're willing to look at new opportunities to achieve that, that, that security. Um, one of the things that I've heard from, again, some of the consumer insights experts has been you know, the, the potential that sustainability is going to come back with a harder edge, that the consumer psychology might be something along the lines of, I had no idea about the coronavirus. It's upended my entire life. I'm concerned about my health. I'm concerned about my children. I'm concerned about my family. What else is there in the environment that I don't know about that I should be concerned and so that's going to stimulate that conversation about what might be in my food, what might be in my environment that I want to control. So we need to be prepared to have that conversation in agriculture so we can help them understand what we are doing, what we've always done, and what we will continue to do to produce safe, nutritious food in a way that protects uh, our environment. You mentioned earlier uh, one of the trends to shorten the supply chain. And I think one thing that's come out of this is that people are, have been made aware of the supply chain and what it takes, the steps in between the farm and uh, the grocery store or the restaurant and moving and moving our food. There was already a, a growing move or trend towards uh, buying local, uh, locally produced food or, or shortening that chain. You, you see that, that effort, that movement growing even stronger? We do. I think you're going to continue to see greater interest in that, but I think it will also stimulate a conversation around 
the opportunity for regionalization and some more conversation around how do we make our what is currently the most efficient and least costly food system in the world more resilient without losing that efficiency. And that's going to be a very interesting conversation. And I think this is also a place where agriculture wants to lead because we've already seen signals from policymakers and others of, of the desire to get engaged in this conversation. And so I think it's going to be really important for agriculture to be part of that discussion because our voice cannot be absent in that discussion. The risks are too great uh, to, to the system that we have today to not be engaged in that discussion. I think there clearly is going to be more interest in having a, a more resilient food system. I think that's a conversation that's worth having. But I also think it's a conversation in which agriculture and farmers specifically need to be very much engaged and make sure that their voices is heard and that their interests are at the table. I think history tells us anytime you have a, a life-altering event like this, coming out of it, there are opportunities there are changes you have to acknowledge and recognize, and if you're going to be in business, uh, you have to be aware of those changes and be willing to uh, make some changes on your own if you're going to take advantage of the opportunities that will be there. Absolutely. Yeah, you couldn't have said it better, Mike. I think that's exactly right. Anytime you see volatility, there's opportunity. And we're seeing a disruption and volatility that we've never seen before in society. And so as we work to move past survival into envisioning what success looks like going forward, that's the opportunity for agriculture to begin to think about what's next and how do we position ourselves, whether we're in livestock agriculture, crop agriculture, uh, whatever it happens to be, how do we position ourselves to be successful in this changing environment? And looking back and saying we want things to go back the way they were is not a great strategy for success. Things are not going to be the way they were. The environment's going to continue to change. Demands are going to continue to change. So how can we be best prepared to address those emerging demands, those emerging interests going forward? Because there is opportunity in volatility. There is opportunity anytime there is a life-changing event, as you mentioned. And so those who can see that opportunity are those who will uh, ultimately capture it. Charlie, always good to talk with you. Very interesting. Thanks a lot. Take care. Mike, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. All right, coming up next, more reaction to the government's CFAP effort, the uh, Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. Uh, some parts of agriculture are happier with it than others. Some feel left out or they didn't get as much help as they would have liked. As the sign-up begins for that today, we'll talk with the CEO of the National Potato Council. That's coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. CFAP sign up starting today. Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. Some are in agriculture, are saying they kind of got left out of this or have some concerns about how it was done. Let's talk with Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. Cam, good to talk with you again. I know you have some uh, questions and concerns uh, for your industry when it comes to CFAP. We do, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Uh, just a for background for your listeners, about 60% of the potato industry is facing 
the food service channel. So that's the really highly impacted part of our business when the coronavirus, when the government lockdown happened, those customers dropped off overnight. And what we're facing right now, we actually, we, we did the math on this. Here's a, here's a visual for you, Mike. The resulting oversupply of potatoes could fill the United States Capitol 14 times over if we trucked them all to D.C. So that, that we've got this massive oversupply. And what we early on sat down with USDA and we said, look, we need two things. We need, we need you to come in and aggressively buy that oversupply to allow the marketplace to start to work again. And then for those growers who, who just flat out aren't going to be able to benefit from those surplus commodity buys, we, we need to be able to participate in this direct payment program in a substantial way. Um, you know, it, it, trying, to, trying to put yourself in the shoes of USDA, they had a massive task in front of them um, in terms of just in specialty crops. You've got other, over 300 different commodities that they've got to sort out. Um, but the, as the program rolled out last week, we saw that potatoes, there, there are three categories of payments that you can qualify for. Potatoes were left out of category one, which potentially is the largest uh, block of payments. And really, we're only going to qualify for one of the three categories, just on the nature of our business, contracts with processors, those types of things. And the payment rate for that one category is at a remarkably low level. And so we've gone back to USDA and we said, look, the, you know, the images of growers giving away their potatoes in these big lines around the country, those just don't line up with, with being excluded from at least a portion of this direct payment program. So if, if you can help us, USDA, let's go in, let's make some modifications so that these growers who clearly their backs are against the wall, they're going to be able to to, to see some benefit that, that they ought to as we sort through this whole thing. So we know it was set up to allow other commodities to come in. We talked with the wheat growers last week. They're going to try to get uh, some more classes of wheat into the program. Are you hopeful then that you think you can show USDA why uh, you should have more assistance available to potato growers? Yeah, I, I think so, Mike. I, the the economic data is is readily available, um, and we think USDA is going to be open to listening. They they basically said that to everyone when they rolled the program out last week. I, I think they recognize the first shot out of the gate is not going to be perfect, and so we want to sit down with them, uh, lay out that economic data, and then we've also we've we have suggested a couple of remedies to the existing program about how they can essentially deal the potato industry more fully into the benefits. Um, the, you know, the, the challenge going forward, I think everybody recognizes, is the, the resources that Congress delivered to USDA, regardless of how you cut them up, they aren't going to be enough. So Congress going forward is definitely going to have a role here. They've got to pass a new stimulus bill. It's got to have a lot more money for agriculture specifically for direct payments, but then also on the surplus commodity buys I mentioned earlier. Um, if everybody really puts their shoulder to the wheel and acts quickly, um, we, we think that we're, we're going to give growers a fighting chance to get through this and be able to survive uh, on into 2021. 
Um, but, you know, the clock really is ticking right now, Mike. As the economy starts to come back, as we start seeing the reopening in different parts of the country at different paces, different levels, of course, are you seeing any improvement, any pickup again in demand for potatoes? We are. Um, it's it's slow and steady. And, and I, I will say, you know, we've been focused on food service. The retail, what you see at grocery, that that side of the potato business has been strong from day one. So that's that's a positive for those growers. But, you know, like I said, it's not that that's that, that's a substantial part of our business. But 60 um, percent is the impacted side. So we're worried about those folks. Um, we are starting to see slow, um, slow increases in volumes. Uh, things are things are start starting to turn. You can feel that pendulum starting to swing a little bit. Um, what we're really worried about, Mike, is for in in this period right here in front of us, growers are making planning decisions. A lot of them already have made those planning decisions for for 2020. If we don't provide them with some options right now, um, this thing is going to echo for a year and a half. So um, uh, if you don't plant right now, you don't have any options. Um, or if you if if you plant in the wrong volumes, it'll it'll change things going out. Um, so we, you know, we really want USDA to provide some clarity. What can growers expect, um, so that they can get that, that balance right. And we can try to get back to, to, I don't know if we're ever going to really get back to normal, but we're going to get at least on the road to normalcy. Yeah. Your producers have to survive now to be able to, uh, take advantage of the return to, uh, increased demand levels, uh, that we hope are coming soon. Cam, as always, thank you for being with us and appreciate the update. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. All right, that's going to wrap it up for today. Coming up tomorrow, we'll take a look at the, more of the reaction to these uh, government assistance programs and uh, how they are helping agriculture, what more is still needed. We'll take a look at market reaction to the economy starting to come back and open back up, as well as how it looks at all the planting numbers and things like that. Lots to talk about. I hope you'll join us. Stay safe and join us again tomorrow right here on AOA. AOA.